Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. Hope everybody is doing well after our little break that we did, and I hope everybody enjoyed those, um, what, from the vault favorite episodes that we did. But um, before we get too far into that, I am your host, Jordan Porter, joined by the wonderful Yvonne Brandenburg, and still joined by Brittany Laughlin. (laughs) She hasn't run away screaming yet. I know, she came back. (laughs) <laughs> so, so for those of you who don't remember who Brittany is uh Brittany joined us for our neurology series because she has her vts in neurology so um much smarter about brain stuff than jordan and i <laughs> hopefully Very much so theoretically I guess. theoretically whatever <laughs> oh right I, well okay so we have to premise this with this is the first time we're recording now in 2021 yes um, mm-hmm. It is like the 2nd of January that we're recording. And it was a nice little break, but happy new year. I know it's a little bit belated because we do have one episode that will actually air <laughs> the first week of January, but this is the first recording we're doing. So we survived 2020. We are now in 2021, which is very exciting. Um, and uh, that means <laughs> I am now a president, but Brittany Ooh. is now official president elect for AMVT, right. which is exciting. Yes. Um, so, so <laughs> this, <is> our, <laughs> this is our first like yeah. month, week, whatever, doing like presidenty things. So, yeah. Well, that's true. <laughs> this is like the first time we're like working together this year, but we're going to probably be doing a bunch of stuff all year, right? So, probably. I think so. Yeah. I and know. We, we have our first meetings next in the year, too. It's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And um, if in case you haven't checked it out, check out AMVT. If you're interested in internal medicine, I'm assuming you are because you're listening to this podcast. So go to AMVT.com. Um, this podcast is not associated with them. We're just very much associated with AMVT. So <laughs> we got to make sure everybody knows that. Um, but yeah. Uh, do we have any housekeeping this week, Jordan? No, not really. Just, I was going to say happy holidays to everybody. Hope everybody had a very, very good holiday season. Everybody survived. I did talk with a couple of like our listeners and stuff like that over the holidays, but nice. no specific reviews or I'm just going to shout out all of our fans for actually still holding on yeah. and listening to us. Oh <laughs> like, my God. I know it's kind of weird. It's like the, the holidays, it, it was, it, in some ways it was less stressful but in other ways it was more stressful because of the whole COVID. Like, I don't know about you guys, but we socially distanced from everyone. So we saw people in driveways and then went home, which was kind of nice. Like I didn't have to worry about cleaning my house. (laughs) Yeah. But it sucks for the people who really like rely on the whole like visiting family thing. Yeah. It was hard. Yeah. But so I FaceTimed with a lot of my family, but we do that anyway, because I'm the only one who lives down here in South Carolina. So, uh, <laughs> so it was very normal yeah. for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Other than like seeing my parents, but that's it. Yeah. 
so uh, all right well let's uh let's jump into this miss jordan you got it all right so this week we're going to be discussing it's kind of like one of my favorite im slash neuro diseases because i see a lot of these cases too mm. and when i say a lot it's probably not like a lot compared to what britney sees but it's not this super is, common this is one of those things can, that can go either way like Sometimes they get referred to internal medicine. Sometimes they get referred to neural places and, you know, either, either specialty is capable of uh, managing them because this is a neuromedical thing. So I do like these cases. I mean, they suck for the dogs, but, uh, (laughs) so this week we're going to be discussing myasthenia gravis. Um, it's a neuromuscular malfunction this week. Uh, the episode is race approved for one CE hour on the internal medicine for vettexmembership.com site. Members can go ahead and go there, complete the quiz, and you can get your certificate. Non-members can use it as self-study though in, in most places if you just want to, if you have a, the capability of just logging that you listen to an educational podcast for an hour and don't need a certificate from it. Right. <laughs> and uh, it's good to remember too, like all of our episodes, because we are internal medicine, it is our, these are specific to internal medicine, but especially this series, I mean, this series is specific to neurology. So if you need neurology specific CE for anything, um, it's a good option. It's a good thing to have. So, you know, um, definitely take a look at that. All right. So I'm going to let Brittany take it away though, because this is, (laughs) these are her notes. This is her game, except for I will probably throw in like my story. Oh yeah, for occasionally. Sure. <laughs> right. Sure. Don't need to just listen to me. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so we're talking about myasthenia gravis, which is uh, just a kind of a little bit of a tongue twister um Latin uh name for a disease disease that it basically means grave muscle weakness because uh, that's kind of how it presents clinically. Um and so this is most often uh, a chronic autoimmune neuromuscular disease that results in kind of generalized muscle weakness. And there's a few kind of exceptions to that, which we'll get into a little bit down the way. So, um, so what's happening here, if we talk about kind of neuro normal physiology of how nerves and muscles work together. So the nerve endings synapse with muscle fibers. So the, the nerve itself kind of terminates at a muscle fiber, fiber and they communicate between each other. And this is what's called the neuromuscular junction. Mm. So the neurotransmitters get released from the nerve into this synapse, this gap between the nerve and the muscle. And then uh, those neurotransmitters will uh, take an action on the muscle to either create some, uh, an action or prevent an action from happening, depending on what the neurotransmitter is and things like that, um, which is just a, a really deep conversation by itself. But, um, <laughs> if we're talking about muscle contraction specifically, you need the neurotransmitter acetylcholine for that to happen. I feel like that is like the one thing that was pounded into my head in school. <laughs> I, I feel the same way. We didn't have a ton of neuroacetylcholine, but I remembered, you know, prior to working in neuro, I remembered that acetylcholine and muscle are go hand in hand. You know? Yeah. So normally acetylcholine gets released into the synapse. It binds to acetylcholine receptors on the muscle, which initiates the ion channels in the muscle and muscle contraction. Remember all those like actin and myosin and all that stuff happens mm, mm-hmm. muscle contraction <laughs> i didn't want to get into that stuff either because 
that's deep and I feel like we really definitely deep. I definitely remember learning about that in mm-hmm. my muscle system in school and yes it's good to know but does that does that information you know make it so that we do things differently in a practice probably not right. but it's good to have in the back of your your head <laughs> right. right so um, so yes, yeah, so that's what normally happens when we or our patients or whatever, every kind of movement you make that involves muscle contraction relaxation is some combination of those events happening. So mm-hmm. for patients with myasthenia gravis, however, there's two kinds. So probably the most common kind is what's called acquired generalized myasthenia. Um, and so the body is producing antibodies against acetylcholine receptors on the muscles. So there's autoimmune production mm. of antibodies for those receptors. Um, IgG is the most common antibody, I guess. Um, wow. So these antibodies kind of float around and they bind to those receptors on the muscles at the neuromuscular junction and it, uh, cause um, either a blockade of receptors because there's antibodies in the way. So just like a so like there's something already in the lock mechanism. Yes. So yes. the key that would normally go there yes. is prevented from being used. Yes. They're taking up space. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's like the person in front of you at the ATM that won't finish their transaction and just <laughs> hanging out in the way. You're like, um, hurry up. <laughs> right. Or um, they can cause degradation of the receptors. Mm-hmm. So the receptors don't so function very well. Mm-hmm. Or... Um, the muscle end plate, basically where the nerve and muscle come together in that area um, can become lysed and kind of not. And that's the neuromuscular junction. So mm-hmm. that breaks down. That's, that's crazy to think of because I would think that if it's the blockade, that one probably is easier to yes. treat than if we've got breakdown or lysis of things if you're losing the receptors altogether yeah uh, that's much more challenging um and they don't do they regenerate if if you like stop the autoimmune not in anything that i recall reading and looking into this stuff and not that i remember from like saying my test or anything i was just saying and that makes sense because nervous tissue is probably the one that's the least regenerative slash slowest to regenerate, well, which is why like you, back trauma and stuff like that. Plus, if you think about too, like treating these cases, if if receptors were able to regenerate really, then um, eventually they would recover, and you wouldn't have to do any of the treatments. Do you know what I mean? Like eventually, like long term, right? Yeah, eventually, yeah. you'd be able to wean off because there'd be enough receptors to to manage, right? Right. But, yeah. Um, so, not that I know of. Um, yeah, I, was so, gonna say, I don't think I've ever heard of, with, especially with like the patients that I've seen, but yeah, I guess I've never really thought about it this way, but it makes sense. Yeah. Um, so that's the most common type. There's also what's called acute fulminating. It has the same kind of process. The same things are happening with the uh, general uh, acquired, but it's happening very, very quickly. And there's a lot of complications that come up very quickly. So not only are they getting weak, you know, in their, um, skeletal muscles, but all the other complications start happening too. And it becomes, uh, mm. this is, it's, it's really sad when that happens. Cause there's like, not, there's almost nothing you can do about it. Like, 
Yeah, I was gonna say this is a this is a runaway train. Yes, it is. You can't. It's hard to get ahead of it. Yeah, yeah. And if you're lucky enough to recognize that that's what's going on, because I feel like the couple that we've had, it was like in the end stages, we're like, oh crap, we think this is really what it is, because you know by the time they usually come to us, they're already so weak they don't have a lot of function left, you know? And so then that mm. changes what our differentials are going to be because clinically they look very different um, yeah. than if they just have this kind of episodic weakness, like generalized. But anyway, um, and then there's also just a, a what's called a focal myositis. This is, again, the same idea, but it's um, just a focal area that's affected. And usually it's um, pharyngeal, laryngeal, esophageal type weakness. So they may have, say, um, Megasophagus and maybe some dysphagia, but that's kind of it, mm. you know. Frequently, would you see like LARPAR with these patients though, too? Um, I think there mm. is. A, I think I remember reading. There's maybe some coincident coinciding. You know, mm-hmm. is like one thing or... kind of predispose the other, or do these things happen in tandem a lot, or mm. um, or whatever? Because yeah, because you'll see sometimes even with LARPA, right? You'll see generalized weakness too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you, I guess, I guess it's easy for LARPA patients. You're like, it's a 12 year old black lab. Like it's yeah. like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> their weakness right. is just maybe yeah. age related, but yeah, right. I wonder how many of those cases actually have like just underlying myasthenia gravis. Maybe it's just mild. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think that's, I mean, that's a really key point for this disease too. Um, especially if you've got the the slower one right not like the acute acute fulminating which is again that one's really bad but that slow one it's it's a progressive thing and I think that a lot of like owners sometimes miss some of the signs Mm -hmm. yeah or they go in and the doctor's trying to figure out what's going on and you know they're not a specialist so you know the times the number of cases they've seen of it maybe like one or two in their like profession. Right. And so I think that's kind of the hard part is figuring out that's what's going on. And so that's, that's part of the thing too, when they get referred, it's like, do they get referred to internal medicine? Because there's this general thing that we Mm -hmm. don't know what's going on or do they suspect myasthenia gravis? And so they send it to neuro. And so I think, I think that's part of the reason why those are sometimes the most frustrating, but once you figure it out, it's definitely satisfying. (laughs) It's interesting though, too, because I think as like, just in the veterinary world, like when we're talking quality of life with patients or like Mm. with clients, like our quality of life scale involves like, are they able to get up and walk? I mean, like, you know, how many euthanasias come in and they're like, their quality of life's horrible. He can't get up and walk anymore, but it's, so it's like, I wonder how many of these myasthenia gravis cases just because clients were so just sad and upset that their dog's quality of life wasn't very mm, good they didn't yeah. investigate why they weren't walking no. yeah very well, well they usually, just assume old dog arthritis like but yeah. maybe it is other things well and usually they're not um usually they're not just flat down either it's very very yeah. episodic and quickly episodic so yeah. it can be hard um for owners to even just wrap their head around what exactly how to even tell the the vet what they think is happening or whatever you know what I mean or you know yeah yeah um, there's like little collapse episodes and then yeah. just yeah. yeah it's interesting um 
so so anyway, so all those are the acquired types, so um, which we'll get into kind of how those sort of present in a little bit. And then there's also a congenital form, and this one's a little bit simpler. Um, these are puppies that are just born with a fewer number of acetylcholine receptors. So instead of having, making up numbers, 20 receptors, they have three. You know what I mean? They just don't have the number of receptors that they need. Um, Which then would make the muscles weaker because- yes they can't contract the way that they need to because yes. it's like having three people holding a rope instead of 20 people holding a rope. Right. <laughs> right. So um, uh-huh. who this is happening to, it can be um, any breed. Uh, there is some, maybe some evidence that it's maybe a little more common in um, German short-haired pointers, Newfies, uh, German shepherds, Akitas. Um, and then some terriers like Jack Russell's are kind of well represented in this too. Um, and then sometimes in purebred cats, and there was a bunch of things that said specifically Abyssinians and Abyssinian related pure breeds. Um, wow. But I sure don't think I've ever why. seen it in a cat. I don't think I have either. <laughs> to be Interesting. Honest. Huh. I wonder if it's just because it's not recognized. You know I mean, what I mean? maybe. Huh. Interesting. I feel like maybe ataxia in cats is just very. Well, and it's hard to examine cats for neurologic things anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Especially this. Like, like, are they stubborn? Right. I need you to move around so I can see how you're moving and you're just going to crouch in the corner. So that makes it challenging. (laughs) Or then when they do start moving, they just like scurry. Right. Close to the floor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, um, age-wise, it, this interestingly tends to have a bimodal onset. So either very young, less than four years, or a little bit older, so over eight years. And this gets into kind of what we were talking about before. We're like, okay, as they start getting older and having more difficulty walking for other various reasons, as this just getting kind of overlooked because of that, you know, if they're having trouble getting up or seem to be, you know, exercise intolerant, quote unquote, um, and a lot of people might just chalk it up to like, oh, he's just an old dog, you know. Yeah. potentially. Um, and then there may be some association with other diseases too. So the, the big one, um, I think that most people kind of vaguely remember um, mm. from being taught this in school is that um, presence of thymoma or thymic cysts increase the likelihood of developing, um, developing this. Uh, potential hy- potentially hypothyroidism. Um, interestingly, I was surprised by this anal sac adenocarcinoma <laughs> apparently happens concurrently wow. with this. Um, and then masticatory muscle myositis, which we'll talk about next week too. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, it's interesting. Anal, anal sac carc- yeah. adenocarcinoma. Huh. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I've definitely, I've definitely the thymoma and the hypothyroidism and, and 3M like, yeah, definitely. It's interesting, huh? And then, you know, if you think about whether it's acquired or congenital for time frame, that makes sense too. I would, I would guess under four would be mostly the congenital ones. Right. And then the congenital ones, they're usually going to show up like, like as puppies, like, Mm, so these are under to thrive under four months probably is when they're already showing up because they're, they've been having trouble since the beginning of being able to walk, you know, Mm. um, so, so yeah, they can definitely have acquired onset in that kind of adolescent, early adult stage too. Well, and if we're talking antibodies, like an autoimmune thing, 
like I think of autoimmune as like being set off by like allergies and stuff Mm -hmm. like that too so that that also makes sense like you know you're getting you're getting new puppy vaccines and right and just exposed to the world and the things in the world in the first few years of life yeah Mm -hmm. yeah um so presentation wise like in the clinic usually these guys in in my experience usually they're coming in for kind of quote-unquote exercise intolerance um Mm. so they um the owners usually are complaining that you know my dog used to go on one mile walks with me and now he only makes it a quarter mile and he sits down you know, Mm. that kind of stuff. Um, and the degree of weakness is very, very, very variable. (laughs) Mm. I've had patients that it, it took several minutes of running before they started to show signs of weakness. And I've had some that couldn't take three steps before they had to sit back down, you know, so it can be, it can be kind of a wide range of what their weakness looks like too. Mm. Um, sometimes they'll present for, um, you know, kind of ataxia or being down. Um, usually this is when we're getting into areas where, like I said, the owners aren't quite sure how to describe what's going on. They know this is weird and this isn't how their dog has always acted, but they're doing something weird and, you know, they're calling the receptionist and the reception hears he's having trouble walking. So we just assume that means they're like down from like a spinal thing or something, you know, right. um, sometimes, which maybe you guys can speak to this a little bit more. I feel like this is, these are the ones that come in through ER or maybe through medicine is they come in for vomiting, mm-hmm. um, or regurgitation, um, or even through the ER because they've aspirated, you know? Yeah. I was gonna say, those are usually the ones that get transferred to us and they're like, they <laughs> yeah. don't know why. And you're like, Oh, well, we figured it out. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say like the majority of our myasthenia and gravis cases that I've ever seen have always been like, I think they come in for regurge already aspirated mm-hmm. or aspiration pneumonia mm-hmm. yeah combo yeah um so if you're you know taking a history and talking to these clients things to consider asking um if it's if this is something that seems like it's worse at any particular time of day um because again this is very kind of quickly waxing and waning they become really weak they sit down and then with rest um yeah. usually a minute or two then they can get back up and get moving again so particularly with older dogs and things like arthritis, you know, there may be a little bit more rickety in the morning, or maybe they've mm. kind of spent all their energy in the evening. So if you can identify, does it sound more like an arthritis thing, or is this much more waxing and waiting than that? Um, Got it. So our, you're almost like asking for that particular time of day to almost rule it out yeah. and rule it in kind of yeah. thing. Okay. So, and, okay. And I mean, it's a little subjective too, you know, that's the yeah. thing where you ask the owner this kind of specific question. They're like, Oh, I've never thought about that. Yes. And then the answer is really no. So, you know, take it with a great salt, but maybe they have noticed that like, Oh, the morning is the worst and then it gets better or vice versa or whatever. And that might kind of be able to lead you in a different direction too. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then asking, do they get better after they rest for a while? If he, you know, you go on this mile long hike and your dog lays down at the half mile mark after a few minutes, can you get back up and do it again? Is it persistent? You know, like that kind of stuff. Um, one of my favorites is a change in bark. <laughs> mm, yeah. Cause if they're having laryngeal pharyngeal kind of dysfunction and you might notice some, uh, change in bark too. And it's, it's my favorite. And that's the owners that have noticed that. And I, I think like, maybe twice ever I've had clients that come in almost specifically for this, like his bark is different. (laughs) And that's pretty astute on the parents end too, you know, the owner being able to say like, yeah, he used to have this really deep bodied 
mean sounding bark. And now he's like, who? <laughs> That's interesting because we get those and we're like, oh, where's the tumor? Oh <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, there must be a tumor down there. We're going to scope you. <laughs> um, and then also they may, like I said, they may be coming mm. in for some, some dysphagic type things. So are they having any sort of trouble eating? Are they noticing the food dropping out of their mouth or there's like a bigger mess around the food bowl than normal are they drooling more than normal are they regurgitating or vomiting i say you know vomiting in quotes because these dogs aren't aren't ever actually actively vomiting it's all regurgitation because they and um, clients have no idea what the difference is yeah they have zero idea so (laughs) if they're telling you they're vomiting just keep in the back of your head that it might actually just be regurgitation and ask them this is what i (laughs) This is what I do. I'm like, are they vomiting? (laughs) I'm like, do they do the whole body contraction? Like, or does it just come Come out? And they go, oh yeah, it just comes up. So they're vomiting. And I'm like, that's regurgitation. And I will tell them regurgitation. And then I keep using the word vomit. I'm like, still not vomiting. Yes. Yes. So yes. Asking kind of if there is part of the presentation going down that rabbit hole too, to try to identify, is this really vomiting? Are they actually regurgitating? and try to get characterize that a little bit better too. Yeah. Um, and then usually these acquired ones have some amount of chronicity to it. So it's probably been going on for a little while and it's maybe started to get worse and that's why they're coming in. Um, and then this is generally non-painful thing. So if they are describing that my dog is in a lot of pain and crying out and things like that, that's not very classic or mm. myasthenia, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm trying to think of, yeah, because I would think if you're, if it's painful, I would think more like spinal issues right, right, or and that's, an infection yeah. or something else that's causing problems versus, correct. I don't, or even like a, like a, a polymyositis <laughs> might look kind of similar to this too. They, their mm. muscles are so painful. They walk for a little while and then you take a break because they're just, they're freaking muscles hurt, you know? Mm, Yeah. That's where we could, we could talk with the owners too a little bit more because they might say, well, they're uncomfortable. They don't want to do anything. Yeah. When in reality, it's not really uncomfortable. It's just weakness. Yeah. It's just that they just can't. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, (laughs) Correct. Yeah. Um, Hmm. So some differentials for, uh, these sorts of presentations, uh, some other neuromuscular type diseases. This is what makes neuromuscular diseases quite a bit of a challenge to diagnose because mm-hmm. they all kind of look the same mm-hmm. and they all usually have like a very tiny window of when you can actually diagnose it with some specific testing and, or the specific testing is not actually that specific. And, you know, so it just, sometimes <laughs> it just becomes like a, a bit of a fishing expedition, but um, other things that could look similar to this um, would be like botulism, toxicosis, uh, tick paralysis, um, envenomation of some sort, some snakes and some spiders, depending on the, the type of venom mm-hmm. might have kind of a similar look to it. Um, there are some other kind of a little bit more in the zebra category of things, but more breed specific, <laughs> um, neuromuscular junction diseases or inflammatory muscle diseases, like I said, polymyositis might be something to keep in the back of your head too. Um, and then even potentially spinal disease, um, could look similar to this, um, particularly like lumbosacral disease or mm. uh, discospondylitis. So that's infection of the end plates of the vertebra um, and the disc between, and that mm. can be very, very, very painful. Um, yeah. And to where they might look similar in that they 
it seems like uh, they're atoxic and they're atoxic and not they can be weak but um they just are reluctant to walk because it hurts really bad so it's a challenge to get them to do it because they right. don't want to you know and not because they physically can't it's just they don't want to yeah. <laughs> i specifically remember a bulldog that came in that came in for being quote unquote down and, and would not walk for the owners and we kind of forced it on him and he didn't like it but he could do it but yeah. he really 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 didn't want to because it hurt really bad um, so just those sorts of things keep in the back of your head too when you see these cases is it potentially um, potential other diagnostic things. Yeah. Um, so how do we figure out which which of this is happening? So the neuro exam, remember, is just a super, super important diagnostic tool. However, it might be normal. <laughs> and if again, a waning period. <laughs> well, and it normal. depends too on that degree of weakness. If this is a dog that can go half a mile before getting weak, well, yeah, his neuro exam is probably going to be pretty normal looking. If he can mm-hmm. only go two steps before collapsing, then like he might have some, some abnormalities. But um, if they do have some neurologic deficits, um, the most prominent one is that exercise, exercise induced weakness. So, um, what we will usually do, and if you like, I'm sure you could probably Google search some videos of mycenaean dogs as you like run them up and down the hallway, just over and over and over again until they get too weak to do it. And it'll, it'll start to look like they get this kind of characteristic choppiness, usually in their back legs, particularly, but in their front legs, it can happen too that as they're going, it's, it's almost like they're putting on the brakes, right? When you're trying to get them to go do something they don't want to do and they kind of back up and sit down and try not to do what they don't want to do. It's very similar to that. They get choppier mm. and choppier in their legs until they just sit down. Cause they're like, they just can't. <laughs> mm. So we make them tired so we can see what that looks like. And if that shows up, if this is one of the things we're worried about. And then once they do get too weak to move, we let them rest for a little bit and then see if they can get up and get back at it again for a little while, you know, and that, that is usually the classic thing, this being able to induce a weakness, giving them a few minutes of rest, and then them being relatively normal after that, you know? Wow. Um, how, what's the like recovery time on that? For how long does it take before they can yeah. get back up again? Um, I would say like, I don't know, maybe a minute or so. Oh, it's pretty quick. Yeah, usually if you just give them give them a minute, then they can get back up and do, do and then a they bit more. they walk normally after that. Um, yeah, usually. Or are they still? Oh wow. I mean, and again, it depends on like how bad the weakness is. Right. If they could only ever take a few steps, then they're probably going to be weak regardless of how long they rest. You know. Right. But, um, the ones that can go a fair bit or, bit of distance before getting weak will probably look fairly normal after rest. Wow, crazy. Yeah which is a little challenging. Mm. Um, when we test their, um, also interesting, when we test their um, proprioception, so how they know where their feet are, that's usually normal because this isn't a spinal um, or sensory disease. So they can feel where their feet are and know that they're at an abnormal place. They just are sometimes weak. Mm. <laughs> um, and then spinal reflexes, so doing like the withdrawal or the... Um, patellar reflexes are usually normal too. If they're mm. really, really bad or those fulminant dogs might, those might be a little bit abnormal, but um, 
a little less common. Um, the thing that sometimes you'll see doctors doing is um, trying to evaluate for decremental reflexes. So similar to the running them around until they get tired, we do their reflex over and over and over and over again until they get tired. Um, palpebral is the particularly big one that this will show up in. So if you just tap on their face over and over and over and over again, eventually they'll stop blinking because <laughs> oh, they just, geez. they lose, <laughs> they lose the, um, the acetylcholine that they need. So they can't do it anymore. Uh, so we'll do that sometimes to see if that shows up. Oh my God. <laughs> I can just imagine. Don't mind me. I'm doing a test. Tap, 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 tap. <laughs> that happens we'll do it. So like where dogs will lose their palpebral reflex though, like with certain medications, like, cause I know we've had a couple yeah. of patients and that mm. we have to put them on eye medications and stuff like that because they'll lose it. And they're usually like IMHA patients. So I'm assuming it's some of the immune suppressives. I just don't remember which one. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen that with some of we had a cocker with it huh interesting yeah <laughs> so my doctor makes it a habit every time we have an imha patient like in for a recheck he'll check their palp palpebros i can't wow. speak palpebros palpebral <laughs> yeah that's the word for the day <laughs> palpebral that's a pretty fun word <laughs> Um, so yeah, so we'll do that. And then, um, they may also have, again, with the, the, um, dysphagia type stuff. So they might have a reduced gag reflex. And I know, I mean, just from my experience with students and stuff, everyone thinks this is like a crazy mean thing to do, but it's really no different than giving, than pilling a dog, honestly. Oh so, yeah. <laughs> so you test their gag, you basically just stick your finger as far back as you can and see what happens. Um, and if they choke, then great. If they don't, then you're like, huh. You're like, <laughs> you should be caring that I am in the back yeah. of your throat right now. Um, so checking, checking that to see if that is intact, um, just paying attention if they do seem to have excessive drooling, if they have dysphagia or a history of dysphagia or that dysphonia or change in bark. And sometimes I like sometimes you can kind of hear it too, a little bit like a I don't see a lot of larpars, but I feel like larpars have weird barks too. That kind of like mm, mm -hmm. not full bodied bark. It's like just the raspy, kind of like, like, raspy. Yeah. You're like, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's last like a D bark a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, that came up not too long ago. What was I reading that about? I forgot that that was even a thing that people ever did. Yeah, we have. A, well, I think it might have been in one of the like anesthesia groups or something where they were having trouble intubating, and I never ever thought about that. That like when we yeah. crush that tissue, then yeah, intubating is going to be a challenge. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's kind of neither here nor there. But yeah, I don't see them very often anymore. But um, no. we have a couple that come in, and I'm like, oh, you were definitely mm -hmm. debarked. Yep, you're still barking. Yeah, still barking. Still barking. It just sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. <sighs> All right, so um, some lab work that we can do, just your run-of-the-mill everyday CBC chem anyway, you know, gotta right. get your, I was like, get your baselines. Stuff. <laughs> um, T4 and TSH, maybe ACTH stem, uh, just to try to rule out some, maybe those like hormonal Addison's things. Yeah, yeah, that may be either contributing or is just, you know, a slightly less normal presentation for that. Um, yep. I feel like, I don't know, you guys would know more than I do. I feel like Addison's in particular, like there is a classic presentation for it, but I feel like every dog I've ever seen is like, 
not normal presentation for Addison's. <laughs> right? The atypical Addison's. You're like, yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, I think those are the ones that come to us because like the GPs are like, ah, oh, it's Addison's. Oh no, mm. I don't know what this is. And we're like, it's atypical Addison's. It's still Addison's. Yeah. <laughs> I've never met a dog with typical Addison's. They just always have atypical. Right. <laughs> I've definitely seen like the normal Addison's. Okay. We get, we have, we have quite a few. So. Yeah, we have several of those. We, we had a run before we moved buildings on atypical Cushing's, I was like, this is weird. Oh, and we literally yeah. had like three in a row. And I was like, what's happening with our like patients here with like, you can't just get normal Cushing's disease. <laughs> They're like, nope. It was weird. So we'll get some, some weird Cushing's. <laughs> um, so yeah, and you then- can do that stuff. And then you could run a creatinine kinase, uh, I don't know how often you guys do it. We do it, but it's kind of just more for our own, like, oh, yeah. gee, look at that. Like, it's probably going to be high. <laughs> yeah. I don't think, I, uh, I don't think I run a CK very often. Yeah. Like, we don't do it very often. I like think, I think mostly because it's not going to change. It's not going to change what we're going to do treatment wise. Yeah. It's just more of a, like, in those ones where it's not maybe super clear that that, that this is myosinic or we're just mm. trying to figure out exactly what's going on, we'll probably do them, but the little bit more clear-cut ones, you know, it's a thing you can do if you would like to yeah. do. Yeah. Um, and then the big one um, that we'll do for these patients is acetylcholine receptor antibody titers. Yeah, so you can send off some blood work and they'll measure it for antibodies to see if there's some present. Um, this isn't exactly a slam dunk. <laughs> yeah. Um, usually, usually in that, if it comes back normal, that doesn't necessarily mean you can hurry up and rule out um, myasthenia. Um, if there's antibodies present, then that's a little bit more positive. So positive it's, um, hold on. Jordan, help me. I never remember this right. Specific, so it's sensitive. Sen- not specific, but it's sensitive. I think so. <laughs> yes, it's sensitive because if it's positive, it's positive. Mm-hmm. And if it's negative, <laughs> it's not it negative. Could still be positive. It could still be positive. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yes. sensitive, not specific. All right. And we'll usually do like serial titers too, especially if it comes back negative, we'll, we'll recheck and every, you're like, every mm. few weeks just to see, but I've even had some that have never come back and wow. we just keep, they respond to treatment. So we just keep treating kind of symptomatic. Well, and I would you know? think that that would be like, so I would think that antibody titers potentially being low would be like, um, an early stage disease, right? Mm-hmm. Because it does take a little bit of time for the body to respond and make antibodies. Mm-hmm. So if you've kind of caught it early, I can see it being negative. Right. And then potentially, you know, it's more positive later. Or if the body is just like, I didn't even notice this was a problem. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to be negative. It's fine. Right. Right. And for, for the congenital type, um, mm. there is no point in ever sending antibody titers because they're they don't, they don't have antibodies. They aren't making antibodies. That's not what the problem is. The mm. problem is that they just don't have the receptors. So um, if you're suspicious that it's congenital, don't spend that money. <laughs> that actually makes a lot of sense. I can tell you right now, the answer is going to be normal. <laughs> normal because it's congenital. It's not it's congenital. It's yeah. not an auto. It's a structural problem, not an autoimmune problem. Hmm. So, so yeah. Um, imaging wise, um, usually it's going to center around doing some chest rads, um, 
for a few reasons. So um, probably number one really is looking for megasophagus. So being able to confirm, mm. yep, that esophagus is enormy. And look, mm -hmm. there's some food in it right now or whatever. Right. Um, we can also use this as a, as a kind of simplified cancer screening. If you can see evidence of thymoma or suspicion of thymoma um, on chest rads. And then especially if they're coming in for potential aspirating and being able to evaluate aspiration ammonia too. So mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit, I don't know how um, much... Uh, in your guys' practices, you do as low as reasonably possible, but we try to do a fair amount of that in our clinic, um, keeping, you know, radiology people out of the room when we're taking rounds. Um, but for these patients, we don't want to sedate them because they already have weakness yeah. in their esophagus, and then we're going to sedate some more weakness into their esophagus, and they're more likely to aspirate. So um, just be careful while you're taking the rounds, maybe fast them extra long before doing it. Mm -hmm. that sort of thing, you know, mm. be cautious. Yeah. Um, and then similarly, uh, for, for any sort of procedures that we might be doing. So the biggest one that, uh, we would do would be like a muscle nerve biopsy or maybe electrodiagnostic testing. Mm. However, they, you know, need to be under GA for that. And there's an increased risk of regurgitating and aspirating with that sedation general anesthesia stuff so um at least where i am we like we really sit down and try to calculate you know the risk versus the reward yeah. of doing those sorts of things so um probably more often than not we don't uh unless they really don't respond to treatment or we're struggling to get them in a, in a good um plane of management but hmm. uh, so we try i would to think too like if, if you've got like a negative titer right? And you're just like, we really need to figure out what's going on. I would imagine that the biopsy. Yeah. It's more of more a on the table. Yeah. It's more of a later diagnostic. It's certainly not the first thing that we jump into to do. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say you can't do it. You just have to be extra cautious with anesthetizing and, and recovery and, recovering and, yeah, and keeping very, very close eye on them in those, in those procedures. So when you recover these guys, do you, do you recover them like elevated? Um, I don't tend to do a lot of anesthesia myself, There you go. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, when your I, surgical anesthetic department does <laughs> anesthesia on these guys. Yeah. yeah. Ideally they're, they will have, you know, a, um, suction catheter at hand just in mm. case and then you know not necessarily holding them up or I, I mean I guess some tiny dogs but usually those are kind of mid-sized to larger dogs yeah. typically um because I've definitely seen them where they but um, like will like wedge angle them, them. Yeah. yeah they wedge them so that in theory you're gonna have yeah. a little bit less regurge aspiration going yeah. on but and those yeah. things aren't like the, the like commercial wedges <laughs> mm -hmm. aren't, um, I don't think are like crazy expensive either. So even mm -hmm. just having like one in practice, that's got like a, you know, 15 degree or 20 degree angle just to stick underneath them, them to help. Yep. Yeah. With that and various other things that head elevation would be helpful with, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, because then, you know, you're using gravity in your favor to, if there is anything in the esophagus, yeah. hopefully it'll trickle down into the stomach instead of coming out of their mouth <laughs> or into their lungs or out of the mouth and then immediately into their lungs. Yeah. Mm, 
the old switcheroo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so then test, uh, specialized testing. This is the, the one that everyone gets all like, who excited about is the, what's called the Tenslon test. Uh, Tenslon is a brand name. So the, the drug is edrophonium chloride. Oh my God, I was thinking about this and I was like, I swear I've done this random test before, but maybe I'm dumb <laughs> and I don't remember if it was for myasthenia gravis or not. <laughs> but we just like, we had this dog that we suspected uh-huh. week and we gave it an, is it, is this what I'm thinking of yeah. when you give an there injection is. and then like all of a sudden they're like fixed um, yes. for a short yeah. amount of time? <laughs> Correct. Correct. You're like, oh, oh, look, they're normal. Oh boy. <laughs> Dude, I did one. that test like, I don't know, five years ago. Yeah. Mm. That doesn't sense. That actually makes it well because they discontinue making edrophonium. So you can't get tenslon anymore. It's not a thing. Um, so a lot of practice, and it probably was about five years ago, to be honest. Um, so yeah, we borrowed it from the neuro department. So um, so it doesn't get done quite as often, but um, in my practice, we use a different drug called neostigmine. It's um, yep. similar in onset and duration of action. It's kind of the same idea. It's just a different drug to use. Yeah, that's um, what we have. We have neostigmine. Yeah. Potentially it lasts the durations a little bit longer and you have to be a little bit more on top of, um, uh, cause was it less than an hour? Complications, but, oh yeah, no, it's, it's like super. 15 minutes or something like that for Tenslon, right? For what? The, the duration. duration. Duration I think was like typically like 10 minutes or so, but could last up to an hour. And I think neostigmine yeah. is like an hour up to several hours, you know? So you just have to yeah. be a little more watchful of them. But usually if they're gonna have complications, it's usually gonna show up pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. so, um, so anyway, so what these medications are, and this is, please bear with me, cause this is really hard to explain because <laughs> all the words sound the same. This is, this is a struggle I have with my students constantly <laughs> trying to explain it. Yep. So these drugs are anti-acetylcholinesterase medications. And so I just want to say, hold on. Anything with ACE. Esterase. <laughs> esterase, right? That is the breakdown yes. of things. So yes. it is, it helps get rid of things. Yes. So, so we're acetyl- going to stop getting rid of things. Yes. <laughs> Acetylcholinesterase is normal in the neuromuscular junction. And its job is to clear out the acetylcholine to make room for new acetylcholine coming in. And it just, mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the cleanup esterase, right? And so these drugs are anti-acetylcholinesterase drugs. So it keeps acetylcholinesterase from doing its job and cleaning up the neuromuscular junction, which sounds like it would be a bad idea, but that means that the acetylcholine that's in the junction can hang around a little bit longer. And when the acetylcholine at the receptor ATM decides to pop off, then the next one can come on. Mm. So we're prolonging how long the acetylcholine is in the junction so that it has a better chance of acting on the receptors that are available. Right. And I, and the way, yeah. And the way that I would explain it is like, if you think about you're flexing your bicep, right. When you flex your bicep, the acetylcholine is activated to relax your muscle. You need acetylcholine esterase to break that up and let your muscle smooth out (laughs) because otherwise 
you would get a charley horse <laughs> trying to hold your muscle the whole time um right. it's all so, very finely balanced typically yeah. and, and that's why we get see all these things and like this is similar to some of the action that happens with like organophosphate toxicities mm-hmm. and things like that it's all related to this acetylcholine complex and how it all works together you know so we're giving drugs so that the breakdown part isn't happening um, as quickly so that there's more time for the muscles to do, to receive these acetylcholines and do their thing. Just out um, of curiosity, do you ever use this drug for anything other than this test? No. Okay. <laughs> I was just, yeah, I was just like, curious. No, I, don't think that. <laughs> I, don't, I, w- I don't know what, but I'm like, maybe yeah. there's something else that I don't know. Um, and my... Uh, uh, Diplomates will will say too that this this test also is not really specific for myasthenia. It kind of is, but like similar to the antibody, like if they don't respond, that maybe doesn't necessarily mean anything. Or if they do respond, it doesn't necessarily mean it's myasthenia either. It just means that you're correcting some junctional issue that's happening mm-hmm. um, temporarily. So it's not a slam dunk either. If we get a positive response to this and a positive titer, then those two things together are a bit as slam dunky as we can get. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm like, that is what's going on. Um, but a lot of times, yeah, it'll be one is positive and the other's not. You kind of have to just, you know, assume that that's the diagnosis and base treat- treatment off of that. But um, so positive response, because I don't think we actually said that. Jordan kind of mentioned it a little bit. So what's happening, what you're doing when you're doing this test is you make them really, really tired. So you run them up and down the hallway until they start to experience that collapse and make them as exhausted as you can, um, use up all their acetylcholine. Then you give a dose of this drug, IV. It usually takes about a minute to act. um, And then they will get up and walk around like nothing has ever happened mm-hmm. <laughs> and it can and be you like can run them up and down the hallway right, and right. they're good yes and it can be like night and day like yeah. those are the best ones when you have these dogs that can barely take 10 steps and then you give them a drug, and then they're like "Ooh, I could run around the hallway for like five minutes you know yeah and they feel really good and you know it's very exciting it's and not always the drug that wears off and you're like, wah, wah. right, right <laughs> this is a relatively short acting drug so it's this is why we use it as a a testing um, to see what happens when we give it because there is some potential complications um, with giving this and that they can um, develop a cholinergic crisis by administering this. So we need to watch very closely for um, SLUD signs. Uh, so is that what you guys call it? Do you guys call it something else? I call it SLUD, which is salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, but you got two, you- Two D's and an E. Yeah, urination, lacrimation, defecation, um, dys, um, dyspnea, so they can have difficulty oh. breathing, and then emesis too, so they might throw up. Ah, that makes sense. Okay. Um, so this happens when there's an over uh, stimulation of the parasympathetic system. So remember, the parasympathetic is the like rest, rest and, and digest. digest. So if you're making it too active you're too restful and digestible <laughs> then you're gonna have <laughs> diarrhea because <laughs> your GI all is, your things react right your relaxed. gi is like relaxed and working you know so um oh and like if you think about you know this is the you're not being chased through the woods by a bear but you're like hanging out at home so you're 
not going to stop and take a potty break while you're being chased by the bear, but you can do that when you're not. So urination <laughs> makes sense. You salivate when you're going to eat and you're not going to like stop and eat a sandwich when you're getting chased by a bear, but you will when you're not, you know, so all these things kind of make sense to the parasympathetic system as you're things that would normally happen, but it's happening too much. So you get usually what I'll see and almost always with the neosigmine, I'll see drooling and diarrhea are the two things that will almost yeah. always happen. Um, which is funny because I always feel like I'm the one that points it out too. Like, <laughs> like I mean, I, my doctor is amazing. And I love them, but I feel like the dogs always poop. And then the docs are like, oh man, he pooped. And you're like, it's because of the thing. Like <laughs> you're like, you gave them a drug. <laughs> right. This is the side effects. Remember? And they're like, oh yeah, I guess I didn't think about that. <laughs> you're like, cool. <laughs> uh, yeah. They're drooling and pooping everywhere because we gave them the thing. So yeah. So when you give this drug, if you start to notice these signs, um, I always have, um, a laryngoscope and tubes on hand too, and a little dose of atropine, mm just ready to go in case I've never had to give that in my career, but I always have it with me in case. And usually you're looking for those like really severe ones. So they become dysnic and like struggling with all these things coming out of their body. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't ask for it. So, I mean, like where, like, where's the, the fine line? Like, so if they poop and they got a little bit of drool, like we're okay. Just keep an, keep an eye on it. Yeah. But if they're like vomiting and like diarrhea and like all this stuff and then they Right. Dysnic. And they'll become then very like, weak again and dysnic and all that. Mm, like if you start seeing it. it, they look like they're crashing. <laughs> <laughs> Give some anticholinergics. If got they're it. looking at you and wagging their tail while they're pooping a little bit, that's probably not, we probably don't got have it. to worry too much, but if they are. So it's like, if they go into distress, that's right. when if you would give it. But if it's just a little bit of an annoyance, yeah. you're good. Yeah. So giving um, glyco or atropine can help kind of reverse that because that instead is then stimulating the sympathetic nervous system so we're making them more fight or flighty so that they can overcome that, that parasympathetic stuff and that doesn't change anything with like the acetylcholine or the acetylcholine esterase when you give Mm-mm. an anticholinergic because they're different pathways yes ah, very cool right correct so um, the only other kind of special test we could do um, is repetitive uh, nerve stimulation, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, and similar to the idea of um, the mm. decremental palpebral thing. Um, so using a specialized machine, we can stick some electrodes in their muscle and like send electricity into it to make the nerve fire. And we'll mm. do it over and over again, usually about 15 times or so very rapidly to see, and there would record these waveforms and you'll see the first one is really big and the next one's a little smaller and then it gets like smaller and smaller. So you, you have a waveform version of what you're doing with the palpebral. Oh, wow. And so that can help, help identify that this is what's happening. But again, this is Mm. a kind of painful thing. They need to be either heavily sedated or under GA. So it's really not super common that we do it because- if we have a good tensile test and right. blood work, then that can avoid having to anesthetize them. If we yeah. Can. So, so yeah. Um, cool. Treatment wise, um, usually they're probably going to require some kind of hospitalization for a, some amount of time, but it depends on how severely affected they are. Um, I feel like almost every patient that I've ever had, we usually want to keep them for a couple of days, mostly 
just so we can uh, monitor the response to therapy. Because so if we're really suspicious yeah. of this and we do the testing, um, remember that neostigmine is only um, relatively short la lasting. So there's another medication called pyridostigmine and that is the same thing, but a longer lasting version of it. Um, so it has the same method of action. It does the same exact thing. It's just, it's going to last that like, one's like an eight, eight hours. Hour, right? mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's also has similar side effects. So mm. ideally we're going to monitor them, even if they're not super severely affected, we would monitor them so we can watch for those slud signs showing up so we can adjust mm. the medication and make changes without having to like, you know, the owner's calling or relying on the owner. <laughs> recognizing yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> I, yeah so yeah, um, yeah so, we've we've had a couple that like the owners couldn't afford to keep them in hospital yeah so we'll start with like low dose yeah. and be like okay we're going very low and working our way up because yes. we don't want you to run into that crisis situation at home um because, you know, the, maybe they don't have aspiration pneumonia and they don't have right. all these other complications of the disease. Um, and so we've, we've done that, but, but yeah, most of the times our patients are staying in the hospital to treat for all the other stuff, yeah. <laughs> like the aspiration pneumonia. I feel like right. aspiration pneumonia is why we see them. Um, very rarely do they see us because they think it's myasthenia gravis and they don't have aspiration pneumonia yeah. or some other thing going on. Yeah. 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 And that's just another, another aspect of treatment too. If we keep them in the hospital, you know, if we did chest rads and they do have aspiration or we're worried about the risk of aspiration and um, being able to treat them in a hospital for that and monitoring that too, because did we catch it a day after it happened mm. and the pneumonia is going to get way worse, you know? Yeah. Um, so just all just, it's a little bit nicer to be able to hang on to them for a day or two just to watch them a little more closely. But, you know, if they're relatively um, healthy otherwise, and like you said, don't have a, a bunch of kind of complications related to it already, then you could treat them at home and just be in close contact with the owners for a little while. Yeah. Um, you can, um, so... <laughs> uh <-oh>. <laughs> you'll, find, you'll find stuff that says different things. You can... Um, use steroids as an anti-inflammatory or other anti-inflammatories because we need to, you know, this is all because of an autoimmune disease. So we need to try to control that as best we can too, mm. right? Mm. So using um, anti-inflammatory medications to try to uh, trick the body into ignoring its <laughs> immune system for a minute um, can be helpful, but you have to, again, kind of measure the risk versus benefit you know, if they are recumbent and poorly ventilating because of their aspiration pneumonia, it might not be. <laughs> I mean, not a good time to do some. Right. It might not uh, be the time. Or immune suppression. <laughs> right. It might not be the time to start steroids and, until they recover mm -hmm. from their aspiration pneumonia. And then not even lifelong, that's always a, a risk of complication too, right? So they may aspirate later and already be on steroids. So it's just... Um, also a good conversation to have with the owners too for their expectations. Mm. Um, sometimes depending on their, um, how weak they are and their, um, how often they're regurgitating and how bad their megasophagus is, you might need to consider some sort of feeding tube. I think usually it'll be like a peg tube more often than not. I've had a handful of patients that 
end up with peg tubes just to avoid the esophagus altogether. Right. <laughs> um, if they are down and out, consider a urinary catheter. Um, they don't usually, they could, I guess, potentially have urinary retention, but not usually. Um, mostly this is, you know, if it's a big dog that's challenging to move or uh, unable really to move effectively on their own and just for nursing care sake. <laughs> what do you have Which I mean, it? but then you have the, the whole, like, if we are starting immune suppressive right. and you know there's that whole thing right <laughs> yeah yeah yay pros yay. and cons think pros of them and cons think of it carefully yeah get get yourself an easel and a big pad of paper and make yourself a pros and cons list <laughs> a venn diagram of like all right we're gonna do this what's up um and then if they you know if they're dehydrated or whatever iv fluids might be um or yeah they've been regurgitating a bunch and not being able to keep much at all down. They might have some electrolyte disturbances and stuff, maybe worth a little, a couple little boluses of fluids maybe. Yeah. Um, from a technician standpoint, I, I tend to like <sighs> these patients, but I think it's because they are so nursing intensive. This mm -hmm. really requires a lot more from us than it does from the doctors, to be honest. Yeah. Um, especially if they're really so bad things. off. Yeah. Cause there's so many things to consider and monitor and, and, you know, making sure that we're doing the best that we can for our patients. And so, um, if they're, if they're that bad, uh, recumbent patient care is the big thing. So making sure we're rotating them every few hours, keeping their head elevated. Like we said, you could um, even just commercially buy like a wedge or you could just prop up some blankets or whatever, just to kind of keep them, keep their head above their um, belly. Um, if they're that bad, they're down um, doing some massage and range of motion on their limbs to help kind of prevent some edema and um, uh, ulceration and things that might happen depending on how long they're down. Hopefully we can get them feeling better really quickly. Um, I feel like the bad ones that we've had once we start treatment, usually within like two days, they're much, much better, but mm. um, potentially having to do things like that. Um, another big thing is assisted upright feedings. So, mm. um, uh, and monitoring for regurgitation is the other thing. So uh, assisted upright feedings, it depends on how, how, it works in your practice and how much staff you have and how big the dog is and all that stuff. But <laughs> yeah. um, basically either somebody can hold the dog upright. Like if it's a little it's, dog, I love the it's little, a little like, dog, baby Bjorns, mm -hmm. put them in like the little pouch in front of you and feed them. But if it's a giant dog, like yeah. most of these tend to be <laughs> yeah. more often not than not. Yeah. It's like, a golden retriever or something and it's, mm -hmm. it's challenging to keep them and you need to keep them upright for about 10 or 15 minutes so somebody has yeah. to be dedicated to holding them or you can either purchase commercially what's called a bailey chair but if i remember correctly it was a dog named bailey that that owners yes. like created this chair for that's why it's called that but um yeah it's basically a high chair for dogs so you put them in their little high chair and you know, to be honest, a lot of times they're a little bit reluctant with it at first. Cause you're like, what in the heck are you doing to me? You're right. like locking me into this like wooden box, but yeah. you can find like videos online and dog, like they get used to it and they love it. And that's like, and they start little, associating it with yeah. food, which is yeah. like the best thing like ever. The, yeah. the easiest positive reinforcement ever, because every time they're in the chair, they get food. So it doesn't take yeah. long before they're like, this is amazing. And they'll just like sit themselves in the chair <laughs> yeah. ready to eat. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things too that you can do because um, at ACVIM, um, 
there was the mega esophagus like mm-hmm. group they actually had a table and they talked about the bailey chair and they were talking about you know if you don't have a bailey chair you can use like an empty garbage can like mm-hmm. the big garbage yes. can and then just put pillows around them mm-hmm. if you have a smaller dog you could do like a bucket yeah <laughs> i'm like oh so like cute. honestly a like a little five gallon bucket or, yep. and um, then the other thing too is like um depending on the dog to keep them upright they i thought this was hilarious they smeared peanut butter mm-hmm. on a window because the window is easy to clean and the dogs would just like lick the peanut butter mm-hmm. off of the window and that helped keep them upright yeah <laughs> and i was like all right yeah well just so what, there's options whatever works <laughs> is what works you know um uh and you can even like i'm pretty sure you can google you know, making your own Bailey chair or whatever, and just mm-hmm. like get PVC pipes and, and whatever, just to have something. Yeah. I think there's, um, I have to look, I think it's like baileychair.org or something like that. We'll put the, the link in the notes where, um, it gives you, you can either purchase them or it, I think it also gives you like the DIY instructions, instructions to make how to it, do yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. There's lots and they of can stuff be really for cute. For sure. Yeah. The, yeah. The like purchase ones, you can get them like customized for your dog with your dog's name and all that stuff. They're super cute. <laughs> yeah. We, um, we had one, um, that was donated mm-hmm. after the, the pet passed after a couple of years. Um, but they donated it to us. So we yeah. have like the one Bailey chair. <laughs> yeah. We, we actually have three or four and I think they're all different sizes too, which is nice. Oh, smart. We're like, when we get a dog in, we're like, go get that out of the basement so we can have right. it here, <laughs> right. you know? Um, so yeah, so we need them to be upright when they're feeding, um, whether you use wet food versus dry food just depends on the dog. And you kind of have to experiment with this a little bit because some dogs will regurgitate more with wet food and some dogs will regurgitate less with wet food. Mm. Um, so you kind of just have to try it out and see what, what is happening and what seems like it works a little bit better. Um, but overall, um, everybody needs to have frequent small meals. So twice a day isn't frequent enough. (laughs) So instead of dividing their calories per day into two meals, you should probably aim for more like four, um, and keep them really small. You need to like, I call it a meatball. Like you give like a small bite size amount to them and you are feeding them. Like you are measuring monitoring how quickly they're eating um it's not a like plop the food bowl in front of them while they're sitting in the chair situation usually because if it's a labrador my god they're just going to eat it all and have it you know we're going to inhale it give them a little tiny meatball you know every minute or so so that they can eat a little bit give that a chance to move down you know over and over again Mm -hmm. Um, that scent tends to work um pretty well and then again um from a modern perspective, just watching for those sled signs. If you felt like two hours ago, there was a little bit of drool and now there is a ton of drool and might be worth just mentioning, Hey, there's a lot more drool than there was, or, or if they're having tons of diarrhea, like make sure the, the doctors are hearing about this because it could be some complications that are ramping up, you know, so mm-hmm. keep an eye out. Um, so for clients at home, um, they can expect all these things. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the biggest thing really is the, the lifestyle change in their feeding routine. So making sure that they're on board with this, you know, that you can't just have a big old bowl of old Roy sitting out with seven cups of food in it. You have to put them in the chair, sit them upright. Um, I know some with some like really big dogs, they've seen too, where they like, um, 
kind of similar. They have like a stool that the dog puts his front legs on and then the bowls are really high up. So they mm. are like kind of at an incline while they're eating, which it's not perfect, but it's better than having their head down on the floor trying to eat, you know? Yeah. Um, so doing those sorts of things or using bailey chair or garbage can or whatever. <laughs> Do you ever, um, we have some that, especially with water, that's an issue. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have them get those, um, I call them jello blocks, but I don't know what brand it is, but it's like a, a water block that you can like feed the dogs, oh, no. to keep them hydrated. But I know sure no, Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've done that with a couple of them where they just like drinking water isn't, is yeah. part of the thing that's hard for them. And so there's these like fluid jello block things mm. that, that we'll use for some of them because they can swallow it instead of it you know, potentially causing aspiration. So right. I'll, I'll see if I can find it and we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes for that too. Yeah. Yeah. Cause those are all good things. Um, and then the owners just need to know what they're watching for. So usually it's going to look like relapse signs. Um, so if they were, you know, if they got really weak after five minutes of walking and then they could go 20 minutes and then now it's getting shorter again, then that might be some early relapse, um, or worsening. And then also, you know, letting them know what those slud signs look like too. So if they see lots of drooling or diarrhea or things like that, and then worth letting us know about. Um, Long-term wise, this isn't something we can fix. So really the goal is all just symptomatic care and quality of life. So it does become a little bit of a balancing act between side effects and quality of life and um, that risk benefit of certain medications and things like that and being able to manage those changes in in their kind of general day-to-day lifestyle too so um, it can be a big conversation for owners and especially with bigger dogs making sure they really understand um, what this looks like and that their dog might not be perfect we they might always have some some issues but um, if we can get them to where they're pretty functional and living a good life then that's pretty good I know we had one it was it was kind of a bummer but um we had one that's like super cute dog and oh we you know talked to the owners about all this stuff and they came back a month later for their recheck and the dog was like skin and bones and we were like what is happening why is this dog Mm. lost so much weight and the owner's like well we just you know we just keep throwing up so we stopped really feeding him (laughs) it's like okay the treatment for vomiting or regurgitation is not not feeding (laughs) You can't, oh my God. you can't not feed your dog. So Ugh. we need to have another conversation about how to feed him to help prevent regurgitating. And, and then he did better after that, but it was just that initial, that was something that was missed by him that, you know, just didn't, wasn't happening, but it was, it sucked <laughs> when the dog came in, we were all like, what the heck? <laughs> You're like, well, wait, why didn't you call us? Right. Ah! That too. Yeah. Uh, He's having yeah. that much regurgitation and we need to know about it. So we can figure out either if there's something you can do lifestyle wise to fix that or you know Mm. Um, because like i said maybe it's the food maybe if it's a wet food and you're hurting a bunch try the dry food see if that seems any better or not or whatever you know um follow-up wise we usually will repeat the receptor antibody titers um usually it's like every few weeks or so in the initial stages just to try to characterize like is are the antibodies getting more as we're treating it or like when do we find that where it's starting to decrease um, potentially you can get it to down to normal ranges um mm. which is the wow. ideal but it doesn't happen very often 
Um, you may need to repeat chest rounds if they have aspiration or if you're worried about aspiration, um, to monitor that and see if that's re-resolving. Uh, Adjusting medications, again, if they're having side effects and things like that, we might need to change things up a little bit. Um, and then just in general, just to maintain that um, right, patient-client relationship. So, you know, even if we haven't seen them for a while, if they call with problems or need med refills or whatever, we've <laughs> at least seen them recently enough to be able to do that for them. Right. <laughs> oh, just make sure they understand that after a year, you don't get to ask right. questions. You don't get to just, <laughs> I'm not going to call you in some more drugs just whenever you ask. Um, so options for treatment, there's really not a lot of alternatives here. Um, we already kind of talked about alternatives to Bailey chairs, just figuring out however works for your dog to get them upright um, with feeding and preventing aspiration as much as you can. Um, if there is an underlying condition like a thymoma or something, there may be evidence that like doing some treatment for that might improve some of the clinical signs, but um, I don't know how, honestly, it's never really happened in my clinic. Yeah. So um, very, very, very- magically gotten better. Yeah. I think <laughs> I had one, I had one patient that managed to achieve remission. So get to a point where we got them like off medications and they were wow. doing fine, but it was temporary and usually is temporary. Mm. Um, and then, you know, a year later they came back regurgitating again. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, it can, it can get better, but usually this is a lifelong thing that you just have to manage, manage it as best you can, you know, Mm. Um, so just kind of a thing to keep in mind. It kind of sucks because it sounds like we're ending on a sad note. <laughs> no. But, um, usually something to keep in mind is that usually these patients are going to die because of complications. Yeah. I have never had a patient that's died because of the myasthenia. They die because they aspirated and yeah. their aspiration is multi-drug resistant or what, you know, whatever. It's like, that, that kind of stuff is what usually ends up being the, the problem in the long run. So that's why the nursing care and the client education, all that stuff is so important because that's the thing that'll be problematic later on if they aren't on board with that. Yeah. I, so, I was going to say, that's usually the ones that I've seen. It's because of aspiration pneumonia. Like yes. they just, they just got like a really bad case and yes, you know, they can't get over it, which is a bummer because yes. <sighs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you do, you do all this hard work and then it's like, right. Oh. Right. And yeah. like, we had one of the worst ones that we had, it was super sad. Cause he was like a great success story for a long time. And then, um, started to kind of have a little regurging again. And then the owners came home and he was just dead at home. Cause he aspirated oh. like so much so that he just couldn't breathe anymore. It was really, really sad. So, uh, so yeah, so making sure everybody knows what the expectations are and managing all this stuff and preventing the aspiration and keep in mind, especially in the clinic, who is the one monitoring that stuff? It's all the that gets to be staff, us. <laughs> right. So yep. being diligent and don't just blow off a little cough from the patient because it could be signs of greater things, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, like I said, as bummer as that sounds, this is part of why I like these cases because it really is um, the technical technical staff that can make a big difference in how well they recover and things, you know? For sure. It's the tip of the week. So this week, this one was kind of an easy one to come up with a tip of the week. Uh, basically, <laughs> just be patient. 
Um, These cases can be really challenging, um, but also think about what is going on. Mm -hmm. So what I see happen all the time in my hospital, usually it's students, but is that somebody's taking the dog outside for its, you know, potty break in the middle of the day or whatever. And they get so frustrated because they stop halfway there. And then you see them like kind of trying to drag the dog and like getting them to go and whatever. And like, they're not being stubborn. They literally can't do it. <laughs> oh, 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 wah, wah. So, so, so don't get wrapped up in your head and be like, I'm right. on a time crunch. Don't, don't be frustrated. If it takes twice as long to take this dog out for a walk because he's quote unquote being stubborn, carve out time to take those pit stops where you get halfway down the hallway and then you have to stop and take a break. Great. Now you're going to stand here for a minute. And then when he's feeling better, then you can get up and walk a little bit farther, you know, mm. um, work within their abilities, especially if they can't make it far enough to go outside, use a gurney. <laughs> You know, and I think that's really important too to, to talk to owners about with that, because yeah. we have the medical knowledge that if we stop and think about it, like we get it, but, but a client may not. And so that's, that's really important to also remind clients that, you know, while we're getting things under control, he's not going to be perfect. So, right. you know, give them the space and the time to, to do what they need to do and have those rests and, and breaks and stuff like that too. So right. just take a little, little walking break when they need to and let them recover and you'll get it done. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and now for the question of the week. Uh, so this week's question of the week, cause um, I, I don't know, they're always super fun and exciting. I think we're going to say, have you ever been a part of or seen a tensilon or a neostigmine uh, test. If you have, um, let us know. Cause I feel like they're always super exciting. We're like, yes, that's cool. Yes. Yeah. When it, when it works, everyone's like, woo. When it's it doesn't, you're like, like womp, womp. yeah. When it doesn't, but. Yeah. All right. Cool. Anything else you guys can think of that we should talk about with my senior gravis? I think we covered a lot. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, I was excited to relearn about this because I'm sure I learned about my student graphics <laughs> at some point. Um, yeah. Hopefully All right. it seemed like, did you feel like you learned something? Yeah, <laughs> I did. I definitely did. Yeah. Good. All right. Cool. Mission accomplished. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, you guys, uh, definitely, if you want your CE, um, go to the internal medicine for vet techs membership site. Uh, you can log in, answer questions. We have the five questions. You'll get your CE certificate. Uh, and then, you know, if you, <laughs> if you know people who like neurology, um, send them to the podcast. Cause we've got, what was it? Six total that we did. Yeah. Six total. Yes. Three and, last uh, year and three this year. Oh, that's kind of fun. <laughs> three in 2023 and 2021. Woohoo. Um, and so, yeah, next week we have our final in the series, right? Yes. Um, and we're doing mask, mascatory myositis. Mas- Did- <laughs> Masticatory. Dang it. <laughs> I can never say it right. Uh, or two M. <laughs> Correct. Yes. So we'll have that next week. And then <laughs> that'll be our last week with Brittany, Sorry. but thank you. It's been fun. So cool. All right, you guys, 
it was fun. We hope you guys got your learn on this week. Please let us know if you have any questions. Brittany's, uh, we can always, you know, tag her on things and get her answers to questions if you guys have anything. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that's it. Anybody, anybody else, anything before we head out for the week? We're good. All right, you guys have a wonderful week and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.